Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 124. Right off the bat, we want to say thank you to Crystal from Illinois. Oh, Michaela from Tennessee. Katie S. from California. Bailey S. from Texas. Vanessa A. from California. And Elizabeth S. from Tennessee. Thank y'all so much for your support. And we hope that y'all are enjoying your bonus content. If you're listening and you want to shout out, go to patreon.com forward slash the APC podcast. Nothing new in my neck of the woods. Nothing new in my neck of the woods. So we're going to talk about someone else's neck of the woods. All right, y'all. So this week we are covering a cryptid and it was suggested by a creepster named Amber Finley. Oh, hey, girl. This cryptid's origin story has changed over the years, depending on the generation, But the first stories about it popped up around the 1940s, 1950s. And the cryptid is known as the Pope Lick Monster. And you supposedly can find it in the Fisherville area near Louisville, Kentucky. I'm sorry, Pope Lick? Mm Mm-hmm. Not touching that. Yeah, so first off, let's talk about the name, because Gary is touching it. It sounds like this cryptid goes around licking popes like they're the wallpaper in Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. (laughs) Oh, yep. Different direction than my brain went. Mm, Okay. Well, however, it gets its name from the Pope Lick Creek that is below the Pope Lick Train Trestle, which I believe is sometimes also called the Norfolk Southern Railroad Trestle. Well, the Popelik monster is supposedly a human-goat hybrid, and in some variations of the tale, sometimes part sheep as well. And I knew you were going to love this one, Carrie. A three, for, a three for one. <laughs> so a person, a sheep, and a goat. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just a fucking triple threat. So it has a very tall, muscular human frame and stance, fur-covered goat legs, and an alabaster-skinned face. So that's, like, white for people who don't know the she-she colors because, right. you know, like, alabaster. Okay, not not egg white. Right. Eggshell crate carton. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever that fucking color is. Alabaster. Right. I don't know why I said it like that. I'm weird. Okay, bye. <laughs> And it has a nose, kind of like an eagle's beak, they said, and wide-set eyes. Okay, so a goat, a sheep. It's not an eagle's beak. It's an eagle's beak, an eagle, and a human? No. I just it's said, a fucking quartet. I can't let you get away with this. It's a fucking quartet. I just said it for you to kind of think about it, because <laughs> it's like, the big word is like aquiline. You'd be like, what the fuck is that? It's like a fucking eagle's beak, motherfucker. (laughs) 
It also has short but sharp horns that protrude from the forehead, kind of like Carrie's, and hey. are burrowed in hair that matches the fur on the legs, also like Carrie's. This bitch. <laughs> Why are you telling them I hadn't shaved? <laughs> Some say that they look like ram horns. Most describe its body to be deformed and deathly pale, hence the shishi word alabaster. And its hair is greasy and Ooh. almost more of a goat version of a minotaur. Can you use words I understand? <laughs> you know, Minotaur is like the half horse, half human. Oh, okay, 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 okay. This is going to get Carrie real good. She's going to love the story. Like, she's already loving it, but she's going to go to another level. Okay, okay, hit me with it. There are no confirmed sightings of the Pope Lick monster. Then how the fuck we know he exists? So all the descriptions are just part of the urban legend. Mm-hmm. Um... <laughs> So people just say he exists, but nobody's like, my great uncle's big brother's step-girlfriend saw it. Because no one lives to tell the tale, Carrie. Oh. So there's different origin stories, like I mentioned. So we're going to go over the different ones. The most popular origin story is kind of sad, of course. Picture it. There was this man who was known to be a liar and a cheat. Sounds like some exes. His name was Colonel Beauregard Sheldnight? Sheldnight? Hmm. Hmm. But we're going to call him Colonel because obviously everything else is question mark, question mark. But he was the ringmaster of a traveling circus. And of course, he was known to mistreat his performers. And like all evil men, picture evil characters in old Disney movies. Money is what fueled his decisions, and therefore he put money before anything else, even human lives. So his traveling circus was almost infamous because any location they anchored their big top for a bit was riddled with theft and other gang activity. Most say that he treated the circus more like a gang than a circus at all. Well, the colonel was always on the hunt for the next big thing. No matter if it was a scam or not, he wanted to make the moolah, to make it rain. All I can think about is Colonel Mustard in the study with the lead pipe. <laughs> Why you got to talk about his pipe? Fucking horn dog. You're not wrong. <laughs> well, he found his next big thing on a stop in Beltsville, Maryland. He found a deformed child who appeared to have fur and be half man, half goat. The child was poor, and so the colonel offered him love, support, and a chance to be someone. However, what the colonel really meant is that he had a chance to be something, a creature. And he was going to use the boy in his freak show to make money. And that's exactly what happened. Year after year, the boy grew up living in a cage, being beaten, underfed, and all around abused. Mm. And even though the boy wasn't fed properly, he had a hunger for something else. Blood. Freedom and oh. revenge. Ow. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Who wrote this? <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> okay. So, 
Like most urban legends and scary stories go, one dark and stormy night, the circus was traveling through Kentucky and was on the trestle that I mentioned earlier when lightning struck, and it caused the train to derail. The train crashed and killed nearly everyone who was on board instantly. However, the furry creature escaped. The people who did survive were not alive for much longer because the creature was finally going to get his revenge. He tore their bodies to shreds, and he did, in fact, get to look his captor in the face before he ripped the life from the colonel. Damn. Also, was everybody mean to him? I picture, like, just the colonel. Like, I felt like, I don't know, so everybody's mean to him? Probably. Those jerks. I mean, I don't know. But probably, because he was young, he was, like, a quote-unquote freak that couldn't take off his, like, costume or, Mm -hmm. you know, anything like that. It was, you know what I mean? But here we go, Carrie. Now he had a taste for blood, and he was hungry for more. Blood. (laughs) And that is why he haunts and hunts the trestle, looking for other humans to devour and feed his bloodlust need. There is a variation of this where the creature was the one struck by lightning on the trestle, and that's what transformed him into a monster stuck on revenge and, like, destroying mankind. And then there's another origin story that says that the Popelik monster is this twisted reincarnation of a farmer who sadistically tortured and sacrificed a herd of goats when he made a deal with the devil in exchange for satanic slash supernatural powers. And it's like, be careful what you wish for, because he got supernatural powers, but probably not what he was expecting. The cosmic powers. We live in space. Talk about Disney. Mm-hmm. Well, and unfortunately, this legend, it gained some attention from local groups who people said were satanic worshipers. Who knows? Well, mid-1970s, there was a local satanic cult, and they began doing demonic rituals in the Popelik Road area, and... Around this time, cats and dogs would disappear, and people assumed that they were being used in blood rituals, and it was all on this Four Winds farm, and that farm was just like a few, like hop, skip, and a jump, you know, away from the train trestle, and so people said that the Satanist who did these rituals, they allegedly worshipped the Pope like monster. So, I don't know. And also people say that even in the 90s, you could supposedly hear drum beats and chanting coming from the farm on dark nights. There's some other origin stories, but they're far less popular and really don't have any detail. But one is that the Pope like monster was an old chemist And he kind of became a recluse after his face was horribly burned in an explosion. And then another one is that he is just a hermit who's strange and he's living in an old shack who stalks the trestle. So now we know about the Popelik monster a bit. Let's talk about the Popelik trestle. It was built in the late 1880s. 
The trestle is 90 feet in the air and is 772 feet long. And a lot of the terrain that it's over is a mixture of fields, brush, and small trees. And the thing to know and remember about this trestle is it has no railings. There's no place to hide from oncoming trains. So think about that and remember that it's 90 feet in the air. So if you are in the way of the train, the only place to go is down. And that's like an eight or nine story drop. Oh, damn. There will be no survivors. Okay, well, what makes an urban legend creepy? Learning that there are many ways that the creature can lure you to your death. And the Poplick monster is very clever. I tell you how you lure me down there. Candy Crush Lives. No! Pay off my student loans. And Candy Crush Lives. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's believed that the Poplick monster can hypnotize trespassers to walk along the trestle, basically luring them to their death when there's an oncoming train. And this can be by telepathy or some kind of siren call. And they say that the sound will drown out any sound of an oncoming train. And so the person ventures out onto the tracks like it's not dangerous at all. And once you're there, the train cannot stop in time and you will surely meet your demise. The cryptid also has the ability to mimic voices, making it easy for it to entice you closer to the trestle under false pretenses, thinking someone you know and love needs help or something like that, and then bam, you're hit by a train. Or if it doesn't mimic your loved ones, it can sound like an animal or a crying baby. Whatever it knows will get you out to the trestle. Some versions of the legend insist that the Pope-like monster waits for a train to approach. Then, from underneath the trestle, it will hold its victim down until the train runs over them. Oh my god. Yeah. And the victim's still in that trance. So they can't, you know, try to get away. And hopefully that means they can't feel it and know what's going on. I hope. Another claim is that the cryptid can jump easily from the trestle down to the roof of the cars passing, and then it kills them with a rusty, blood-stained axe. Damn. Then there's a story that says when a person who is walking the trestle sees the cryptid, it's so unsettling that they cannot function properly and are almost entranced by their terror and are led to leap off the trestle. So naturally, going up to the trestle, climbing it, and searching for the Poplick monster became a teenage rite of passage, and particularly during Halloween. And also, it was kind of a way to set the mood for teenage hookups, too. Like, oh my god, my man's so brave, I'm going to drop my drawers now. <laughs> you know. Martha Williams, who is a longtime Fisherville resident, she's been quoted as saying, there would be just mobs of kids out there near the trestle and climbing up on it. It used to be a favorite thing to do. The boys would con the girls into it. Most of the ones that came out here were no locals. The locals sort of knew better. Hmm. And that makes sense that there were some close calls, you know? And so then, like, the locals were kind of more like, eh. So people would come from neighboring towns, and that was a thing. 
1988, there was a short film called The Legend of the Public Monster. It was 16 minutes long, and it cost $6,000 to film. And most of it was shot at the Popelik trestle, but the scenes that showed the characters up on the trestle were filmed in a different location that was safer because, you know, trains and shit. Wow. Well, the Norfolk Southern Railway officials were super upset because they were like, okay, one, you're making this urban legend like infamous, and we think that you are encouraging teenagers to go do this. And they found this one scene really misleading. They said, in this scene, the main character, who is a high school student, he escapes a train by hanging off the side of the trestle. Well, in reality, they're saying, mm, not a lot of high school students have the strength to hang on for the five to seven minutes it takes a long train to clear the trestle. Also, the vibrations from the train are so strong that the ground beneath the trestle shakes. Hmm. So if you could hang on, it could, like, I mean, it's going to ruin your grip strength and could shake you off. I mean, if it didn't, that person needs to go on American Ninja Warrior. Right. Well, the Norfolk Southern Railroad warned that trespassers will be arrested for their own safety. They also beefed up police security and installed a tall chain-link fence at the base of the trestle. And they posted the danger private property signs that we all know. But even that hasn't kept people away. Even if there haven't been any sightings of the Popelik monster, there have been deaths related to the urban legend. On a show called Monsters and Mysteries in America, the Popelik monster was highlighted in an episode titled Ozarks. And this lady, Sue LaRue, she's interviewed and talks about her son, J.C. Baum. He was an all-around great guy, known for always willing to lend a hand to his friends, well-liked in the community, all the things. So on the night of February 18th, 1987, 17-year-old J.C., which stood for Jack Charles, and his friend Chris Jones headed out to meet up with some of their friends. They were all driving around looking for something to do, and they ended up at Popelik Park. And it was kind of the party place, hangout for teenagers, you know, all the things. Like how we have the Texaco parking lot when we were in high school. Right. Well, across the street from the park was the Popelik Trestle. Well, as the boys were sitting in their car, they could see the trestle. So J.C. jumped out of the car and told them, let's go, let's walk across the trestle, let's go try to find the goat man. That's also what it gets called to. So off they went, and they're up on the trestle. All of a sudden, the trees light up around the bend, meaning that there is an oncoming train. So the boys scattered to try to save their lives. And all did besides J.C. He unfortunately was struck by the train and his body was found a ways up the track, badly broken. Mm. God. Lee, who was his 15-year-old sister, she wanted to find the goat man for J.C. She went up on the trestle and she said that she felt fear, but she wanted to see what he saw. 
And she said that she was almost frozen, but her curiosity continued to lead her out on the trestle. She did survive her experience, but she said that she believes that the goat man entranced her brother and called to him and led him out there. She still searches for it today, and JC has been remembered by them spray painting, JC, we love and miss you, on the trestle's base. Hmm. Another death attributed to the Popelik monster was that of David Wayne Bryan. In May of 1987, 19-year-old David, he died of injuries that he suffered a year earlier when he jumped from the trestle to avoid getting hit by the train. Dang. So like I said, there's no survivors when you jump from 90 feet up. And so he survived... But he was suffering all that time and then finally succumbed to his injuries. Dang. In November of 2000, Nicholas Jewell of Mount Washington, he was 19. He died after falling from the trestle. He had like four friends with him and they all told the police that Nicholas was attempting to cross the trestle and was like halfway across when the freight train approached. And so he had moved to the side and attempted to hold onto the railroad tie. So like to that metal hanging, but the train's vibration eventually shook him off. Oh yeah, I was gonna say, I bet that was too much. Yeah. What sucks is most people believe that the tracks are no longer in use. They are rusty, they kind of look rickety. I love that word. (laughs) But the truth is, That trains cross the bridge up to 25 times per day. What? Yeah. So the people who go looking for the Popelik monster and are from out of town, they're under the assumption that the tracks don't work. There's nothing to worry about. And unfortunately, there have been recent cases where this assumption has cost people their lives. Oh my gosh. In a 2016 article in the Louisville Courier-Journal... The writer, Beth Warren, interviewed a man named David Nee. He was visiting from Ohio with his girlfriend of one month, Roquel Bain. They were going to do a Waverly Hills tour that night, but first, Roquel had a detour in mind. And so they went to find the Popelik monster. However, being from out of town and just judging the trestle by appearance, they thought it was out of service. And David did say, yeah, we saw the no trespassing signs and stuff like that, but those are up when something's been abandoned, too. So they didn't think there was a present danger, I guess. Well, they're up on the tracks, and they didn't hear the oncoming train until it was about 40 feet in front of them and was not looking like it was going to slow down anytime soon because, you know, a train just can't slam on the brakes and stop. Right. Even if it slams on the brakes, it's going to skid a while. Fucking science. Well, David jumped over the side of the trestle, gripping the edge with both arms and one leg, and one leg was dangling. The train grazed his arm because that's how close he was Mm. and left a mark. And remember how I said it was like physically impossible to hold on? Well, David is a 6'1", martial arts instructor, and a power weightlifter. So he wasn't just like the average teenager I was talking about. Right. However, his girlfriend, Roquel, did not make it. 
The train hit her and knocked her 80 feet to the ground. And David said that out of the corner of his eye, he saw her body falling. He was charged with misdemeanor trespassing on railroad property and later faced felony charges. Damn. Yeah, for, quote, unlawfully disrupting and or delaying the operation of a train causing financial damages. Wow. Yeah. What's sad is Roquel had a one-year-old son. <gasps> oh, no. Yeah. David said that we only dated a month. They knew each other for six months, only dated for one. And David was quoted saying, we only dated for a month, but I've never been impacted by anyone as much as her. She was one in a million. Oh. Then Candace Polio posted a link to an article in the Facebook group about an incident in 2019 involving this urban legend. Police responded to a call around 9.30 p.m., and it was to a report that two girls were hit by the train while on the trestle. One was killed and pronounced dead at the scene, and she was later identified as Savannah Bright, and she was only 15 years old. Mm. The other one was never identified, you know, to the public. She did make it. She was sent to the hospital, but she was in serious condition. And the police were baffled as to why they were on the tracks, but most think they were looking for the public monster. So who is to say that the people who died while searching for the public monster never saw him or heard his siren call? Because, unfortunately, they did not live to tell about it. And one thing I didn't really touch on is that they say the Popelik monster could be linked to the Maryland Goatman. Because of that whole origin story about the circus stopping in Maryland, and that's where he was from. So that might be relatives, or maybe the same person. Because he also, like, stalks a train and stuff like that. But I didn't really go into all of that. Hmm. What do you think? I think it doesn't exist, but it's a serial killer nonetheless because people die finding it, like trying to find it. That's true. You know, and it's like so many people, myself included, like I want to go to Goatman's Bridge in Texas and stuff. However, it's like open and I would never trespass or anything right i'm such a rule follower me neither and let's just be honest i am scared of heights and i am with clumsy mcclumserson um me and if there's no railing oh hell no i'm not going like an inch above the ground with her by my side okay you're not wrong yes however people like us who want to go exploring different haunted places different just weird places They are putting themselves in danger, you know, and then you don't, especially if you don't know everything, like how these people thought it wasn't in working condition, and it is. Yeah, I was going to say 25 times a day. Yeah, and there's nowhere to go. But down? Yeah. That's scary. Yeah, either way, whether Goatman's real or not, people dying. Yeah. And, I mean... You can put up no trespassing sign to cover your ass from a lawsuit, but, I mean, it's not going to stop people. Right. And what's sad is that that they can't really do anything 
You can't just shut it down. Yeah, you can't shut it down. But also, like, even if they put a railing up, they it still wouldn't help. Then, also, like, they'd have to build it out just in the, hey, if someone's up here, they could stand on this thing. Like, that's silly. Just don't go up there because that is a lot of fucking money that they would have to put in there. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, it's, oh, it's just so hard. Because, like I said, I mean... I put myself in this situation, like, I would want to put myself in this situation to try to find this creature that's never been seen. And, you know, you do it for the podcast. So I'm not saying these people were dumb or anything like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, definitely not. Because we have all ignored all the signs and plowed right ahead. Mm Mm-hmm. Look, I am just like a bulldog. I will try to get... In the smallest spaces, because I'm stubborn as shit. Yes. Well, I don't believe in a goat man. But like I said, I believe in people dying. Yeah. I wish there was just something that could be done. But again, you can't just be like, uh, let me... It's not like fucking Legos. You can't be like, let me take this train track over here. Yeah. Okay, well, you know, it started off, but I liked it. Because it had killings in it? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, dark bitch. I mean, I just said the other day, somebody had cold hands. I said, cold hands, warm heart. But uh, I got hot hands, so (laughs) what's that say about me? Right. Okay, my story this week was actually recommended as well. So Jessica Wallace, she will always be Jessica Baggett to me because she is my birthday twin. Literally, we were born two days apart. Our moms worked together and saw each other around labor and delivery and was like, oh, shit, you here too? <laughs> so anyway, okay, Jessica recommended this story. And another person in the Facebook group is actually from the town where this happened. And I'll tell you her connection in a minute. Ooh. Okay, picture it. September 2nd, 1998. Diane Franco is a sex worker who works in Poughkeepsie, New York. And she meets this John. They negotiate, make the deal, whatever. She gets in the car, goes with him to have sex. And after they have sex, when it's time to pay, she's like, okay, you know, give me the money. And he gets so angry, he starts to strangle her throat. Oh, my gosh. And he's just crushing her because he's so much larger than her. And somehow she gets out. She wiggles her way out and they argue for a little while. And I don't know how she did it. She convinces him, look, let's forget the incident. I need a cigarette though. I am stressed the fuck out like that, you know, like, well, forget it. Just take me to get cigarettes. That's just, just take me to the store. I need some cigarettes. So he was like, okay, I'll take you. When they get to the store on main street, Soon as they pull in, she bolts from the door. Well, at the same time, police are doing these roadblocks where they're stopping cars and saying, like, have you seen this girl? Have you seen this girl? And it's right across from where she bolts from the car. And police are like, hey, I think I recognize him. So they go over there to the car and he's like, there's a girl in there. She says she's been attacked. Like she needs help. Oh my gosh. And so the police go in there and she's like, 
I was attacked. Like, I need help. Like, that's him. He did it. And she pointed out the man who had just told police that, you know, this girl ran in. She had been attacked. She, like, he was like, go help her. But his name was Kendall Francois. So Kendall was a big man. He was like 6'4", 380 to 400 pounds. And, I mean, he was just this, you like, you knew Kendall, you know. He was a local, grew up in Poughkeepsie. He lived with his parents, mom, dad, and a sister. And growing up, he didn't have a lot of friends. People actually called him Stinky. Oh, gosh. Because, well, here's the thing. The house that he grew up in was kind of like a episode of Hoarders. It just had a lot of stuff in it. It was very dirty. His parents didn't make him bathe very often. And so he did smell. So people called him Stinky. He had a really hard time, you know, going through elementary, middle school. When he got to high school, he joined the football team and got a little camaraderie from the team. He didn't have a close relationship with his parents and his sister. Like, they just weren't a close-knit family. And so he was, he kind of found that in the football team. So he blossomed a little bit in high school as an athlete. He wasn't very good at football, but he was a big guy, you know. After high school, he joined the Army. And after four years of being in the Army, he was actually like a medical discharge because he was obese. Mm. Then after the military, that's when he moved back home with his parents and his sister. And he got a job at a middle school as like a hall monitor slash like detention overseer type person. And that is the connection that Stephanie in the Facebook group has. She said, yeah, she said he was the truancy officer for her school. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So Kendall worked at one middle school for a little while and he actually got fired. Mm. And after he got fired, he went to work at this other middle school that he only worked at for like a month before he was fired again. Around that time, sex workers start disappearing. And it took two sex workers missing before police even gave a damn. So I'm going to back up just a little bit. Back to Diane Franco saying that Kendall was who attacked her. The police take him in for questioning. At first, he said, yeah, I choked her, but it was during sex. Mm. It was, you know, mutual. A.K.A. he paid for it kind of thing. And then he said, but we kept having sex. And then, you know, I brought her downtown. And then she freaked out kind of thing. She freaked out, but then you told cops that that person was freaking out and needed help. Mm -hmm. Well, when the police tell him, hey, we got a warrant to search your house, that's when Kendall says, get me the prosecutor, bring me the pictures of the missing girls, and I'll tell you. What? That's pretty much what investigators did. (laughs) So let's talk about the women. In October of 1996 is when 30-year-old Wendy Myers was reported missing. She was white, thin, hazel eyes, brown hair, 
And Wendy was a known sex worker. That's going to be the theme throughout the story. Women who are sex workers who have substance abuse problems. Wendy went missing. Her boyfriend put in a missing person report and nothing happened. Because why in the world in 1996 would police want to look for a sex worker? According to the things that I've read and a couple of like shows that I've watched on YouTube about it, you know, the police say we got a lot of pressure to just put this one to the side. Yes, it's a missing woman, but she's a sex worker. It's a high risk lifestyle, blah, 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 blah. Well, two months later, so December 1996, Gina Barone went missing. She was a sex worker as well with a history of substance abuse problems with drugs. One Friday, she and her boyfriend get in this big argument and she's like, get the fuck out. So he leaves, and when he comes back, she's gone. Well, come Monday morning, and he still hasn't seen her. So he goes to her mom's house and is like, you know, have you have you seen Gina? And his her mom's like, first of all, I've never met the boyfriend before, so I didn't even know who he was. And he's telling me he can't find my daughter. Wow. And so Gina's mom, Patricia's like, Gina doesn't leave town. Like... She's been here, you know, most of her life. Like, she don't leave town. She's got her routine. She's got her, how she makes her money. You know, she's missing. So she goes to police. And at first, of course, the police are going to look at the boyfriend. But they quickly rule him out and go, okay, she's missing. So at this point, you have two sex workers missing in this very, not very small town, but a smaller town But here's the thing. At the time, Poughkeepsie had a big problem with drugs. There was a lot of drugs coming and going, people on drugs, and sex workers who were addicted to drugs that were using sex work in order to pay for their drugs. And while the dangers that come with, quote-unquote, that lifestyle does put the women at higher risk, it obviously does not mean they deserve it, but anytime you have the drug industry, it's going to bring shootings and, you know, danger and all of that. And so one of the last times that Gina was seen supposedly was November 29th. And she was in an argument with someone over drugs. So people were like, well, she might have been killed over, you know, a dispute about the drugs. And maybe her Disappearance has nothing to do with Wendy. So now we're in January of 1997, and police get a report from another sex worker that says she was with this John, and everything was fine until it became time to pay, and then it was this, like, argument. He tried choking her and pulled a knife on her, but she was able to get away. But it was, like, seven or more days before she filed this police report from when it actually happened. But that's not uncommon because even with Diane at first, she was reluctant to help the police when she's the one saying like, help, I was attacked. And then it's police. And it's like, Oh, uh," because she thought she had a warrant out for her arrest. Mm. So when you have people that have, you know, a history of incarcerations and all the things with police, they tend to be, I say this like, oh, like I know, but 
I mean, it is true that they don't immediately go to the police because, again, what if they do have a warrant? What if they do have whatever, you know, a fine or whatever? So this sex worker says that Kendall Francois is who pulled the knife on her. And police know, because, again, look, police know, that especially the people, the cops that are out and about on the streets talking to people, like, they know who the regular Johns are. Like, they know what's up, right? And so they did know Kendall Francois, and they knew that he was a frequent customer of the sex workers and that his reputation was that he got a little rough with the ladies. Police pull him in to interview him, and he's like, no, 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 no. I did not pull a knife on her. I pulled a nail file on her because it was self-defense. So, uh, you're telling me, Mr. 6'4", 400-pound football player, that this 120-pound sex worker got one over on you and you had to have a nail file for, for defense? And who has that in their car? It's probably like a fucking, like, well, no, no, no. He always took the sex workers back to his house. Oh, okay. All I know is what I see in the movies, okay? Yeah. <laughs> so police are like, cool, cool, but can you, like, take us and show us a nail file? And he's like, all right. He said, I'll take somebody with me. So he takes one police officer to his house. He takes him in. He's like, you mind if I look around? He's like, no, 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 go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Girl, that police officer deserves a special place in heaven. Anybody who went in this house deserves a special place in heaven. Is it worse than that place? Yes. Look, Pazuzu Algarod could fucking never. If you haven't listened to that episode, you need to go back. It's like episode 101 or some, I think it's 100. You need to fucking go back. You need to listen to that nasty shit. But this fucking house had so much shit in it, figurative and literal. Ew. It had animal excrement. There were so many maggots in this house. Ew. That they had become gnats and just the shells were left. Ew. Talk about circle of life. Fucking gross. Oh, that detail was, whew, to me. Everything smelled. Everything was disgusting. So the police officers looking around, looking around, you know. I mean, what are you going to find in that heap of shit? Can you imagine being a sex worker that's taken back to this place Mm -mm. and then you have to perform? Well, first of all, God only knows what they had to deal with on Kindle. Oh. Smegma for days. Ew. Ew. Allegedly, but ew. Ew. I mean, not to name call, but his nickname was Stinky. (laughs) Damn. You know what I mean? I mean, like, like it was like a known thing that he didn't, did not bathe. Well, I was hoping that he grew out of that. No. Mm-mm. Oh, God. Mm-mm. You really thought the army would have gotten that out of him, but no. So there's no telling what those sex workers had to deal with. God bless them. Well, when the officer is looking through the house, he finds a door like that's to the basement, and he goes to open it, and Kendall like grabs him by the shirt and is like, nope, that's not the way out. It's this way. Well, and 
he like i guess because he voluntarily let them in they didn't have a search warrant like yeah they got to go where he tells them kind of thing yeah can't go to the west wing okay lumiere (laughs) yes police didn't find anything in his house but that sex worker did press charges guess how long he got in jail a week close he got 15 days and he spent seven wow Mm -hmm. wow yeah so he's on police's radar though at this point you know it's like again they've known he was a regular they're kind of like okay we have two missing sex workers i mean i think that just goes to show you what little value they place on that though because Mm -hmm. they're like we have two missing we know he roughs them up we know he's like a bad guy but like We'll just let him keep doing what he's going to do. Let's put him in jail for 15 days, but, oh, let's just do seven. We'll keep an eye on him. Yeah, like, we'll we'll make sure he doesn't go too far. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, then two months later, on March 7th, 1997, Catherine Marsh was reported missing by her mother. So, she had actually last been seen, like, November 11th, so, like, six months earlier. Wow. Catherine was last seen in Poughkeepsie, and she, just like the others, was a sex worker. Well, it had been so long since her disappearance that they really didn't have much. You know, they knew she's white, just like the other girls, blue eyes, brown hair, but all of her stuff was still at her apartment. Police looked through the teletypes to look for, like, people who were DOA, dead on arrival, Mm, you know, just to see, like, okay, is there somebody that matches up with her description? And this is where police were really like, okay, it's three girls. Like, it's time to, you know, do our jobs and not ignore them because they're sex workers. We have three women missing. And so they start pulling all of the women's records to see, like, okay, are they in jail somewhere? And I'm like, why wouldn't you have already done that? But whatever. Exactly. If someone's missing, I feel like you check the hospitals, you check the morgues, you check the jails. Like That's, like, basic. Yeah. That's missing 101. Yeah. The police start canvassing neighborhoods where the women had been arrested before, you know, so they could, like, what would be considered their stomping ground. These cadaver dogs to search around to see if they could find anything. And there was literally no leads. Then police decide, okay, we need help. There's no leads. Like, you know, it's April. We got nothing other than three missing women. So they contact the police to ask for some support and get a profile. But the FBI was like, there's no crime scene. We don't know if, like, there's literally a crime. There's nothing to connect them yet. We got nothing, you know. Well, then, flash forward to October 9th, 1997. So there was a time frame from March to October, from Catherine in March to Michelle Eason in October. So Michelle was 27 years old, and she was last seen in Poughkeepsie, But she was different. She was of the same build, you know, petite, thin, but the other three were white and Michelle was black. So it was a change in victimology. And 
back then, it you know, it was still kind of of the thought like white people kill white people, black people kill black people, gay people kill gay people. You know, it was it wasn't understood. Not that we understand everything now, but it's much more understood now victimology versus then. A month after Michelle went missing on November 13th, Mary Healy Giacone, who was 29 years old, she was reported missing. So here's the difference with Mary. Mary's mother had passed away, and her father was a retired corrections officer for the state of New York. And he came to police to say, I I can't find Mary, and I need to tell her about her mother passing. And so the police actually started the missing persons on Mary. When they started doing some digging, they realized that nobody had seen Mary alive since February of 1997. Holy Hannah. So about a month before Catherine's disappearance. Mm. She, again, just a sex worker that was very petite. So police are like, okay, we've got missing women, all of a similar build, all sex workers, all disappeared in Poughkeepsie, all were not in contact with their families very much, and just fucking up and vanished. In an effort to, to try to find these women, police did helicopter searches. They tapped every informant that they had just trying to figure out what was going on. There were a few different suspects throughout the case, but none of them ever panned out. You know, people who had previous convictions of rape, the boyfriends, the Johns who were still frequenting the area. You know, they had all these suspects that kind of to come and go, but literally nothing stuck. But police still had in their mind about Kendall Francois. They're like, you know, he had that thing. He's still kind of a, you know. So they brought him in for an interview. They had been keeping an eye on him, you know, so they knew his routine. They knew kind of what he was up to, but they brought him in for an interview and he's cool as a cucumber. And they're like, hey, you want to do a polygraph for us? And he's like, sure. And he passes. Then, June 12th, 1998, Sandra Jean French, she disappeared. Now, she was 51, so she was older than the other women who had disappeared, but she had the same build, again, petite. She was only 5 feet tall, 120 pounds. You know, she, again, petite. She didn't go missing in Poughkeepsie. She went missing in Dover, which is about 20 miles east. But her car was found abandoned in Poughkeepsie, and it was only three blocks away from Kendall's house. Well... July of 1998, they finally form a missing women's task force and finally dedicate, like, full-time investigators to finding these women. Better late than never, I guess. Well, August 26, 1998, Katina Newmaster, she's 25, she vanishes. And, again, sex worker, same build. So I want to read this quote from a sex worker in the journal, which was like a newspaper there. This was in July of 1998. She said, we're lowlifes. That's what it comes down to. People don't care that we're missing because they think we don't belong on the streets in the first place. It's not just the police. It's the community. That is so sad, but so true. Like that's 
not that you, they're low lives. I mean, just to yeah. Like, oh, for sure. Reiterate what you're saying, but, but yeah, absolutely. That's so true. That that's how they're treated, and that's not fair. Like a life is a life. Mm-hmm. Who the fuck is the they them conceptual like they them that decided whose life was more important than someone else's? Right. Like who is the one? Well, you know, they say, you know, who is who is that that said, well, this profession, amazing. This profession, eh, not so much. These, If you're from here, you're the best. If you're from here, you're the worst. Right. Who the fuck? The same people who, back in the day, were using those services. Mm-hmm. And then, but, you know, a doctor is respectable. Just like that story you told about the girl who was quote unquote like a low life in the community but the doctor was a doctor and he was a like a man mm-hmm. of the people and she's like no he sexually assaulted me and raped me and everyone's like no he's a doctor was that a main episode or a bonus episode oh it might have been a bonus so now we're back to the beginning it's september And Diane had just escaped from Kendall Francois. And he has told police everything. Like, willy-nilly. Well, and you know, yeah, because if he didn't, I mean, honestly, I don't know if it would have been solved. I wonder what the difference was since he was so, like, cavalier on all the other times that they brought him in. And this one, he was like... Well, you got me. Bring in this. I'll tell you everything. I don't know. Maybe I, maybe it just, like, weighed on him, too. I, I, who knows? That's what I find interesting. Like, what changed? When he was interviewed by police and they were going through the photos that he had asked for, he made a stack of four photos saying, I killed them, and three photos saying, I'm not sure about those. By this time, police are already at his house. His mom, dad, and sister were all taken away from the house so that they could search it. Kendall had told them to go down to the basement and that they would find a crawl space on this rear wall. And when they get there and they go in, they see dark plastic bags. Holy shit. Like, I know that it's in a crawl space in a basement and stuff, like their bodies, but it's a lot of dead people. That just shows how bad their house was. Mm -hmm. So it was like 1 a.m. when they finally got into the house, like, because when they brought him in for questioning for Diane, you know, blah, 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 blah. It was like 1 a.m. And so they'd found, like, okay, we see some back. Like, let's close this crime scene off. Make sure it's secure. Let's go home and come back when it's daylight and we can fucking see. Because there's some shit going down in this fucking house and we need light. The next morning, when they get there, they dress down in those sterile white suits, all the, like, purification masks and everything because it's so nasty. There was garbage everywhere in this house. There was garbage on the 
floors, the furniture, and the sinks, and the closets. And I'm talking like food wrappers and old food. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Not just yeah. like, oh, I'm done with this piece of paper. Let me throw it. No, like, I don't want this last bite of, of my fucking McRib. Let me throw it across the room. Never waste a McRib. They said that there was clothes, like, literally on every inch of the floor. Like, there was not a place that you stepped, there was no clothes. Sheets were over the windows. I mean, not everybody can afford curtains. I can get behind that. My grandma actually made me curtains out of sheets, and they looked like curtains. They were white. About an hour into searching... They go up to the attic, and the first body is found. So why didn't they start with the bags that they found in the basement? I think that they just started from the top and worked their way down, is my guess. But they started in the attic. So they found the first body, and then they found another, and then they found another. All in the attic? Yes. So what's in the basement? Well, it was more bodies, too. Holy Hannah. In total, there were eight bodies in that house. What the fuck? It was so bad in that house that crime scene investigators who had been investigators for decades had to literally run from the scene gagging and throwing up. There was one body that was in a kind of like squared barrel that had decomposed so much that it had taken the shape of the container oh my gosh and that's so gross like oh my god again like i said insects activity everywhere maggots shells of maggots flies oh. all the things the first body was identified as katina newmaster who was the last person reported missing then they had identifications for Gina Barone, Sarah French, Catherine Marsh, and then Wendy Myers, Kathleen Hurley, and Mary Jaconi. The thing is, though, is that there was no Michelle Eason. And Michelle was the only black victim. All the other victims were white. And they were unable to find her. And to this day, her body still has not been found. What? He, of course, was charged, and it was years for, like, the prosecution, and you know, you know how that goes. But he eventually was sentenced to eight consecutive life sentences in August of 2002. Then he spent 14 years in prison and died at the age of 43 in 2014. While he was incarcerated, he was diagnosed with HIV, which they said... They feel like he got from one of the victims. I don't know. I mean, I feel like that's kind of a stereotype, but who knows? But he also, yeah, he may have gotten it from someone, but God only knows how many people he spread it to. Exactly. But I think what makes Kendall Francois so different was, I mean, I really do think that he killed Michelle Eason too. I mean, and some stuff says that he has eight to ten victims. Like, we know eight but, I mean, people think that he definitely killed more. And especially, like, I feel like that was just such a short span. I mean, it was, like, two years. But eight people in two years and you just randomly start. Like, I definitely think there were others. But what makes this case different 
is that Kendall is black. And there's not a lot known about, I feel like, black serial killers. I mean, you know, we did Derek Todd Lee and, you know, there's Kendall. But, I mean, if, you know, if you, I can't remember where I saw this, but if you ask someone named black serial killers, I mean, there's very little known in kind of that mainstream media of it. But he did some really terrible things. Yeah. I kind of wonder if that's why he wasn't really considered the person who took all these women. I mean, they knew they were missing, presumed dead. But you get the point. Because, again, it was still thought white people kill white people, you know, and white men tend to be serial killers more than black men. And so it's like when you have Kendall Francois who doesn't match a typical M.O., you know, it, I don't know. Yeah, no, that makes sense. But I want to know what in the actual hell was going on in that house that all four of those adults lived there in that filth. Like, what mental illness? Like, something was going on. Yeah. I don't know what it was, but, like, his mom had a job. Like, that. you know what I mean? They worked. They, I just, like, like, the house was known for stinking, and then, like, because the neighbors, people were like, you didn't smell anything? And the neighbors were like, well, their house always stunk. You could always smell their house. Yeah. And then he told his family, well, a raccoon died in the attic, and I can't find it. So that's how he got around his parents and his sister living there with this clearly decomposing body stinking in the attic. But I'm also like, mm, so you have a decomposing raccoon up there for two years? Right. It eventually stops stinking. Mm-hmm. He's just adding to the pile of people, so you know that the smell never goes away. Oh, gosh. I can't even imagine, and I don't want to. No, I... Ew. Well, because now I'm imagining, and all I can think about is it being like a maze of shit. Mm-hmm. You know, just... Like, they've carved out paths for them mm-hmm. to walk. It, like, makes me want to Marie Kondo my whole house right this second. Right. Thinking about it, you know? Yeah. So, thank you, Jessica, for recommending this story. Yeah. Well, because you're right. Because the only one I would even know would be Derek Todd Lee. Me too. And even though I know him, like, I would have to think about it to be like, oh, yeah, 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 him. See, I would know him, but you know how I'm with names. I would go, shit, what's his name? You know, like, I would know it. I just would be like, oh, God, what's his damn name? So, Jessica and Amber came in clutch this, uh, this episode with the recommendations yeah y'all send in recommendations like we we use them like i have a whole file of screenshots on my phone from the facebook group and emails that's like do this story i recommend this story so send them in for sure let us know what y'all think about these stories yeah and we want to do what y'all want to hear so like that's why we love the recommendations absolutely and it's always the best freaking stories because it's like the most obscure stories that I would never find on my own that is what makes it, no, I hate to say awesome, but it's because it's something that people usually haven't heard. Right. And those are my favorite. Like, stories where you really don't know it. Like, this was a serial killer, but it wasn't like Son of Sam. You know, it just right. it was different because you don't know. I didn't know anything about him. Yeah. So, keep the recommendations coming. You can send them to the Facebook group, or you can email us, aparanormalchicks at gmail.com. 
And please don't forget to like and review and stars and that sort of thing because it really does help us out. But mostly, remember, creep it real and and don't get scared.